Good morning and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies here at Cato. And when governments rob Peter to pay Paul, it may seem like a wash, because whatever loss Peter suffers is a gain to Paul, but the story doesn't end there. When government taxes Peter, Peter works less. He still works, but not as much as he would have. And both Peter and Paul suffer a loss because neither can enjoy the fruits of those labors. It is within the power of governments to transfer wealth then, but unfortunately, you cannot governments cannot transfer wealth without destroying it. Economists call these losses the excess burden or deadweight loss of taxation. And economists from Reagan, former Reagan advisor Martin Feldstein to uh, Obama advisor Jonathan Gruber agree that these deadweight losses are real and can be substantial. Yet when Congress debates tax increases or deficit spending, which is an implicit promise to raise taxes in the future, it does not make the deadweight loss of taxation part of its formal cost estimates of that legislation. But in a paper released today by the Cato Institute, Duke University professor Chris Conover argues that that should change. Professor Conover is a research scholar at the Center for Health Policy and Inequalities Research at Duke University. He pre previously served more than a decade as, Duke's, as the director of Duke's Health Policy Certificate Program. And Professor Conover will be presenting his paper to us today. In his paper, he makes, uh, uh, the as an illustration, he makes the first ever estimates of the deadweight losses associated with the tax provisions in the health care law known as Obamacare that President Obama signed into law earlier this year. Here to comment on Professor Conover's paper is Douglas Holtz-Aiken. Holtz-Aiken is a former member of the Council of Economic Advisors, and from 2003 to 2005, he was the director of the Nonpartisan Con Congressional Budget Office. He currently serves as president of the American Action Network Forum for Ideas, Issues, Ideas, and Innovation. Now, following both presentations, we're going to open the floor to questions from the audience, and after the forum, we're going to invite you all to join us for a luncheon reception upstairs in our winter garden. So with that, I will turn things over first to Professor Conover. Thank you, Michael. Um, it's a great pleasure and honor to... Um, come to Cato to talk about why Congress should account for the excess burden of taxation. Uh, with a talk title like that, you can rest assured that I am not going to say you're the dullest audience I've ever spoken to. Um, as I'd risk being tagged as the pot calling the kettle black. Um, However sleep-inducing this topic may appear at first glance, I prefer to uh, frame it in more exhilarating terms, such as preventing the sinking of the second Titanic, or in my most grandiose ruminations, uh, averting the fall of the second Roman Empire. By systematically ignoring the hidden costs of government measured in hundreds of billions of dollars a year, our ship of state has entered waters never before charted. My modest proposal is that we more accurately chart the size of the icebergs that we know we will encounter in the decades ahead, and doing so ideally may provide us with the impetus to slow down enough to avoid a catastrophic accident <clears throat> that sinks our Leviathan altogether. Now, the course I plan to navigate during my brief remarks is quite simple. I first want everyone to be clear on what is meant by excess burdens and how they can be measured. I then will provide some evidence on the magnitude of excess burdens as they relate to spending by the federal government. I subsequently hope to persuade you that my modest suggestion is not completely in right field by describing that how excess burdens already are taken into account by the executive branch. And I will finish by providing a specific example of the nature and size of excess burdens that potentially will be triggered by the new Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act should efforts to repeal or replace it fail before 2014. Now, I'm as eager as the rest of you to hear Doug Holtz-Aiken's uh, reactions to this idea. Um, so you can rest assured that I have every incentive to go through my talk expeditiously. Now, conceptually, the idea of excess burdens, also called deadweight losses, rests on the common sense proposition that if you tax something, you get less of it. 
So in this simple example, imagine a market for apples in which supply and demand curves intersect at an equilibrium price of 50 cents, for which consumers in this illustration are willing to buy four apples. Now note that it doesn't matter whether we're talking about an individual demand curve and consumption of literally four apples, or a market demand curve in which we could be talking about the consumption of four million apples. The idea of excess burden applies in both instances. Now imagine that the government, perhaps desperately seeking more revenues for Obamacare, to <clears throat> imposes an excise tax of 50 cents per apple. Anyone who's taken Econ 101 knows that unless demand for apples is completely impervious to price, the new equilibrium will not be a world in which consumers happily consume, continue to consume 4 million apples at a new price of $1. Instead, what's going to happen is the tax will shift the supply curve upward by 50 cents a unit, causing it now to intersect the downward sloping demand curve at a smaller quantity of apples, in this case 2 million. The new equilibrium price will be 80 cents, of which the tax man will garner 50 cents, leaving the rest for apple sellers. Now, even though Lysander Spooner might disagree, the tax revenues are not viewed as a social loss from a public finance point of view. They are simply a transfer from taxpayers who would have spent those funds one way to the government, which ends up spending them a different way. And while <clears throat> progressives appear congenitally predisposed to believe that a dollar spent by Uncle Sam will provide even more benefits than the same dollar spent privately, most Tea Partiers would not share that genetic mutation. But fortunately, we don't have to resolve this knotty issue since it has nothing to do with excess burdens. What is beyond dispute and something that even Paul Krugman, I hope, would agree with is the loss of output resulting from this new tax, 2 million less apples consumed. This leaves both buyers and sellers worse off. The lost consumer surplus is shown in the pea green colored triangle at the top. And this represents consumers that, under the old market price, would have been willing to pay more than 50 cents an apple, but because of the magic of the market, if you will, are able to purchase them for 50 cents, and hence they get a, a benefit out of that, which is the consumer surplus. There's a companion decline in producer surplus that's shown in the Kermit-colored triangle, E. Now, the sum of these two is the deadweight loss or excess burden of this particular excise tax. Think of it as the unavoidable cost of collecting taxes using coercion as opposed to getting them through voluntary means. When you hear economists discussing deadweight losses at cocktail parties or other uh, events at which they're supposed to be having fun, this is the uh, triangle that they're uh, hand-wringing about. So how do we measure excess bur burdens? Arnold Harberger was the, the first to develop the textbook formula for measuring deadweight losses. For nearly a century, most of what ends up in federal coffers flows from taxes on labor. So Harberger's formula not surprisingly focused on estimating the excess burden associated with such taxes. Now, fear not. Cato would not allow me to administer the quiz that I'd hoped to do after my talk. What's important to see in this formula is that deadweight losses vary directly with the elasticity of labor supply. That is, the more responsive labor is to reductions in wages, the larger the decline in work hours offered, and hence the bigger the welfare loss associated with a companion reduction in output whenever we tax labor. Now, we know from other evidence that all things being equal, this elasticity increases with the wage rate. The intuition here is that workers whose wages are uh, so low that they only cover the bare necessities of life really don't have the luxury of reducing their uh, working hours in response to taxes. 
Uh, conversely, much higher wage individuals have both much more discretion and likely attach a far greater value to their leisure time. And those who don't believe me on this point should read Gregory Mankiw's excellent uh, explanation of this in last Sunday's New York Times. Of equal importance, the deadweight losses vary as the square of the average tax rate. So in a progressive tax system, those with the highest incomes face the highest marginal tax rates. Hence, this formula implies they will account for a disproportionate share of the deadweight losses that in the result. Now, the Harberger formula provides a conservative estimate of deadweight losses since it only takes into account one potential behavior, uh, behavioral margin of adjustment, namely hours of work. But in reality, there are lots of other margins of adjustment by which behavior could change in response to higher tax rates. People could avert or minimize their higher tax burden by shifting their consumption or savings or investment into tax-preferred channels. Or they could hire tax accountants to help them navigate the tax code. Or they could continue to work but hide some of their income in the black market cash-only economy. But all of these responses reduce efficiency relative to a world without taxes. A far more important point, however, is that for purposes of policymaking, what matters most is the marginal excess burden rather than the average burden. Policymaking is unavoidably incremental, where the debate is whether to spend time, or, uh, sorry, spend less um, or spend more uh, from an existing baseline. However much some people in this building might want, uh, want it to be otherwise, uh, we generally don't wipe the slate clean and engage in zero-based budgeting battles. Now, former <clears throat> chairman of, of the Council of Economic Advisors, Martin Feldstein, has developed a more useful formula for deadweight losses that takes into account some of these additional nuances. In his formula, the excess burden varies as the square of the marginal tax rate rather than average tax rates. Unlike the narrow wage elasticity of labor supply, the taxable income elasticity takes into account all of the behavioral margins of adjustment that will affect the amount of income that is subject to taxes. And finally, because this measure divides by one minus the marginal tax rate, this further amplifies the size of excess burdens as marginal tax rates go up, especially above 50%. Consider a marginal tax rate of 90%, which is the very uh, rate that Gregory Mankiw, a Harvard professor, claims he will face under the uh, Obama tax increases. Just this adjustment alone would result in multiplying the deadweight losses uh, by a factor of 10 relative to using the Harberger style calculation. Now, as you can see here, the marginal excess burden varies a, a lot depending on the tax source. Keep in mind that the figures shown here reflect the current distribution uh, and tax levels um, in the United States. Thus, for example, consumer sales taxes have a lower excess burden in this chart than, than do income taxes, but much of that relates to the fact that average sales tax rates nationwide are less than 10%. If we had European-style levels of value-added taxes of 20% or more, the marginal excess burden would be much higher. And what's of greatest concern is that taxes on which we rely on most at the federal level generally have marginal excess burdens in the 40 to 50% range. But for those at the very top of the income ladder, Professor Feldstein has estimated that the marginal excess burden may be as high as $1.65 uh, per dollar of extra revenue actually collected. You can see that taxes with marginal excess burdens under 25% are relatively few and far between. Indeed, the overall weighted average across all federal taxes is about 44 cents on the dollar. 
Thus, every dollar remitted to Uncle Sam on average generates a hidden economic cost of 44 cents that is completely ignored in current congressional policymaking. But that is not to say that excess burdens are ignored entirely by Uncle Sam. In fact, since 1992, the guidance provided by the Office of Management and Budget requires federal agency to add an excess burden factor of 25% to the cost side of all cost-benefit analyses. Doing so obviously sets a higher bar for which programs to be championed for more funding or whether to bring them uh, on board uh, at all. In principle, it means fewer federal programs ever see the light of day. Now, there also was some attention paid to excess burdens, uh, the excess burden implications of national health insurance under the Carter administration, as well as the Clinton health care debates. As we've re recently learned from our 39th president, um, apparently it was Ted Kennedy that killed health care uh, reform under Carter, and the demise of President Clinton's health plan hardly can be laid at the feet of excess burden alarmists. But these illustrations do show that excess burden considerations have been taken into account by the executive branch in a way that they almost never have on the legislative side. Now, this can be remedied if Congress were to request both the Congressional Budget Office and Joint Committee on Taxation to formally incorporate excess burden estimates related to new legislation, baseline budget projections, or scoring budget options. Now, unfortunately, we cannot run the counterfactual experiment of how the debate about health care reform might have turned out had CBO or JCT followed this prescription. But we can roughly estimate the size of the figures that would have been in play. We can do so by applying the various marginal excess burden estimates shown earlier in Figure 2 to the actual sources of revenues that were designated to bankroll health reform. For the bill is actually passed, the marginal excess burden would have been in excess of $150 billion or possibly as much as $229 billion. Yet even these are very conservative calculations since they, ass they assume that health reform is financed through taxes rather than through borrowing. University of Chicago economist Harold Ulig estimates that federal borrowing carries a much higher deadweight loss such that every dollar of deficit finance spending ultimately costs society $4.40. But apart from the higher taxes imposed under the Accountable Care Act, there also is $455 billion that is supposed to be attained through various savings in Medicare, Medicaid, and SGIP. Yet even Medicare's own actuary has raised questions about whether realistically these savings will transpire. After all, Congress has, a dec has decades of good intentions but a rather poor track record when it comes to actually imposing even statutorily embedded cuts on, the, on Medicare providers or other programmatic savings. As well, health reform is scored assumed that Congress would finally uh, allow massive cuts in physician payments that had been deferred for seven years. Yet everyone knows that Congress has no plans to do this, and indeed legislation already has been enacted four different times in this year alone to avert these cuts through the so-called doc fix. No one doubts that Congress will do this again when they return uh, from their, their recess in November. <clears throat> but perennially kicking this down the road is going to add hundreds of billions of dollars in spending to the originally estimated cost of health reform over the first decade. So if we add these two components together and we assume that taxes are used to fill the uh, fiscal gap that will result, the that, this puts the tally of potential deadweight losses at $550 billion dollars but it is conceivable that this figure may be as high as $1.5 trillion. Taking, <coughs> taking at face value the CBO estimates of $143 billion in deficit reduction in the first 10 years, these figures imply that for every dollar 
of purported deficit reduction associated with health reform, the nation likely would be incurring $3.85 in lost economic output or possibly as much as $10.31 in economic losses for every dollar of lower deficits. Now, how many members of Congress would have been willing to face voters and argue with a straight face that such deficit reductions were worth such a steep price? Now, can I prove that such figures would have reversed the outcome in the debate over health care reform? I cannot. But given the thin margin by which the final bill passed last March, I'd like to think that for genuine believers in evidence-based policymaking, this additional information might have provided sufficient uh, resolve to enough blue dog Democrats to avoid the unpleasant situation in which we now find ourselves. Can we repeal and or replace this highly unpopular and possibly unconstitutional piece of legislation. I hope I have convinced you that deadweight losses are simply far too large for Congress to continue to ignore. Failing to account for these costs <clears throat> creates a bias in favor of bigger government and a much less efficient <clears throat> tax code. From the standpoint of policy coherence, it is hard to defend not having the legislative and executive branches be on the same page uh, with respect to this issue. And we don't even have to have seen the Titanic to know that, uh, <clears throat> that navigating in uncharted waters is really risky and irresponsible. Neither does one have to be a Tea Party member to recognize that artificially boosting the demand for government by hiding the full extent of its costs is a really bad idea. Policymakers who have publicly committed themselves to greater transparency presumably should have no objection to a relatively modest uh, change that does just that. So regardless of what happens on November 2nd, I would like to think that this is an idea that could and should secure bipartisan support. Thank you. <clears throat> So I want to say thank you to, to Chris for a, a very provocative and interesting paper and Michael for the chance to, to come here and talk about it and, and you for uh, the patience to listen to me. Um, uh, let me just begin by saying that uh, it would be my, my fervent hope that it wouldn't take uh, the deadweight losses to kill off the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, a dreadful piece of legislation. So uh, most of this is not going to be about health care. It's going to be about this issue of deadweight loss, which is a, a, a real and important issue um, in uh, particularly in tax policy. And the way I think about it is, you know, uh, since I'm all about me, um, uh, the most important thing in my life is Twizzlers. And if the government were in its misguided um, uh, ways to put a $100 tax on Twizzlers, uh, I would probably end up living on Skittles instead because I'd just stop buying the Twizzlers. And so one part of the deadweight loss or excess burden is the fact that even though I'm not buying any Twizzlers and I'm not paying any Twizzler tax, I'm now eating a second-tier snack food, and that's made my life worse. And uh, that's, that's a, a cost of policymaking that is missing in what we do. Uh, second thing is that because I'm now down to Skittles instead of Twizzlers, I'm no longer a, high, a highly motivated think tank president. And so I'm not over at the American <laughs> Action Forum uh, grinding out white papers. I'm at the Cato Instant Institute yapping. And so there's less, there's less output. We have, no, we have no white papers. And that's a loss to uh, the, the economy as a whole. My labor supply has gone down. And that's diminished the productive capacity. And those two pieces a diminished welfare of the population and a diminished productive capacity are at the heart of this issue. And neither of these are things that, uh, about which policymakers should be indifferent. That is, that is the heart and soul of good policymaking. So uh, there, there's no question it should be involved in the debate. And in my view, it is uh, a tragic commentary on the era in which we live that the debate over tax policy has turned into one about taxes up or taxes down on who and when and not about the quality of taxation, what it is we'd like to see our tax uh, uh, policies uh, accomplish, what should be their, their impacts on growth, on capital accumulation, on labor supply. 
and on uh, the productive capacity of the economy. So um, I, I really think that, that this is a, an important debate. And the reason it's a hard thing to get into the, into the policymaking process is real simple. If you go back to the, the, the diagram, uh, the excess burden is unseen. That's the part that's foregone. It's the utility I could have had if they hadn't put in the Twizzler tax. But it's not measured anywhere because it doesn't flow, show up in any accounting. The taxes are seen. And so we spend too much time talking about the taxes and not enough about the unseen, unquantified uh, deadweight loss. Um, the one point, I, I, one question I do have for Chris on the paper is this issue of the extremely large deadweight losses for the, the debt financed part of uh, policy. I, I've never read the paper because, mm -hmm. you know, the tax systems made me lazy. Um, <laughs> but uh, Robert Barrow had a point years ago that, that debt actually was intended to smooth the, taxes, the tax system and thus reduce deadweight losses. This seems to go the other way, so I'm just confused. And at some point, I'd love to, to figure out what's, um, what's going on there. Okay. So the next question is, where should this belong in the policymaking process? And, and how do you get this into it? And um, uh, I, I think first and foremost, while I, I admire the fact that OMB has a, a rough justice compensation for deadweight loss in its regulatory uh, reviews, uh, I am nervous about the, the idea that somehow you're going to create an office of deadweight loss and have them be responsible for, for, for reporting out uh, official estimates of this, because my own view is that monopolies are bad regardless of where you put them. Public sector, private sector, doesn't matter, and that instead we ought to think carefully about how to infuse this kind of thinking into the policymaking process in, in a deep way. Um, one thing that uh, I think is worth recognizing is that the utility loss part, the, the, the part where people's satisfaction is diminished by the tax system, is really a statement about the benefits of, of policy. And so when I think of uh, how you divide the policymaking uh, responsibilities, legislators are responsibility. It's their responsibility for the benefits of, of policies. They, they advocate for what they think are the best policies. Budgeteers, CBOs, OMBs, they're about measuring the costs. And so if this is sort of about uh, uh, low-benefit policies, um, we have to somehow uh, have the lawmakers themselves recognize this in a, in a deep and sophisticated way. And that's a, that's a hard thing to do. Um, on the other hand, if we have the, the output loss, the, the fact that we're just not producing as much as we could, that's a genuine cost uh, to the policies. That cost uh, should be recognized somewhere in the, the official process, and, and uh, I think there, there are ways to go about doing that. Um, so if, if you think about, uh, for example, a CBO doing this, um, I have some, uh, some, some sort of uh, thoughts about how that might play out. So first of all, um, if there is no deadweight loss, then you've got uh, the tax revenue as exactly the cost of the policy, and, and you get it exactly right. On the other hand, if there is a deadweight loss, you'll diminish the amount of output in the economy. There'll be less in the way of uh, wages. There'll be less in the way of returns to capital. And thus, tax revenues will be diminished. So if CBO, or the Joint Committee on Taxation, is actually doing its job right in a genuine dynamic scoring way, impose a tax, calculate the impacts on the economy, get the feedbacks and estimate the revenue in an internally consistent way, the deadweight losses should actually be in the process. And so the first observation is it would not be a new thing to have a debate about the deadweight losses. It would be about are we executing the, the, the formal uh, steps in, in a fully dynamic revenue estimate correctly. And I think there are lots of reasons um, to suggest we aren't, uh, having lived through the, the dynamic scoring battle at CBO, uh, I think there's some important things to recognize about this. Um, uh, the first is that there aren't many policies that are like the, the Affordable Care Act. Most of them are, are relatively small. And uh, if you look at the deadweight loss formula, um, the deadweight loss matters a lot on how big the activity is. A Twizzler's tax doesn't produce a lot of deadweight loss because Actually, Twizzler consumption, myself accepted, isn't that big in the United States. So even if you screw it up a lot, it's a tiny impact. On the other hand, if you mess up labor supply, enormous amount of activity. If you mess up capital accumulation, enormous uh, mass of economic activity, you get big deadweight losses. So there aren't many policies that are actually large enough to move those big uh, deadweight loss uh, uh, centers. And so it's not really... Um, sensible to crank up the full apparatus all the time. That's sort of observation number one. Uh, second is that, it, as with dynamic scoring, uh, there is actually no consensus about how to measure those triangles. 
there are, in fact, lots and lots of areas of disagreement. First is which triangle to measure, and believe it or not, there's a, a raging academic debate on how to measure these, these triangles. Uh, there's a, a wonderfully named paper called Games Pythagorean's Play, which sort of goes through all the different triangles one might want to measure. Um, and so you'd have to settle on one. I think that's doable, but you'd have to recognize that. Second thing is, there are these, these parameters that are important, like the elasticity of labor supply, the elasticity of capital accumulation, savings, um, and it, it, in one of you know, uh, God's little jokes on the human race, um, every time there's a more important parameter, there's more disagreement about its size. And um, the, the deadweight loss is going to be driven precisely by the estimate of the labor supply elasticity, precisely by the estimate of the savings elasticity. And economists fight about those two things more than anything else. And you'd have to get some sort of consensus on first the right model and second on the right parameters to stick in that model before you could get this um, uh, to go forward. And then uh, it's important to recognize that the CBO, at least, is by statute a consensus organization. And so while I might have my strong views about uh, particular uh, parameters and responsiveness, the CBO is going to be driven by the, the sort of typical response found in the literature and, in the end, uh, even if we got it into the process, my guess is you'd have a lot of griping about and dissatisfaction about how it was actually done regardless, because that's the nature of this beast. Last piece, and I think it's important to recognize this, is um, what CBO really does is, is, is called scoring for a reason. And um, it's not prediction, and it's not measurement. Scoring uh, is about ranking proposals to see which are bigger and which are smaller. Um, the best analogy is to think about football, right? Touchdowns are six points. I don't know why. You run it over for the extra point, you get two. Got me why. Could be three. You kick it, you get one. But that allows you to score every game on a consistent basis. You know, which team won, which team lost. You know, which team in another field, in another place, won by more. And you can rank games based on their scores. And CBOs more dedicated to scoring to internally consistently ranking alternative proposals, making sure that those which really are more expensive or really are less expensive are ranked correctly than to predicting the actual cost rate. It certainly wants to get the actual cost as close as it can, but it certainly never wants to mislead the Congress into thinking that doing this is actually cheaper when it's more expensive. And so there are really two, two goals here. One is a consistency in ranking, and when you do that, the last thing you want to do is surprise the Congress and CBO hates to surprise a Congress, and Congress hates being surprised by a CBO. And then the second thing you want to do is sort of uh, get the, the projection right. In this particular case, if you're going to put deadweight loss into the measure of cost that you want to come back from CBO, you're going to settle some technical issues on which, which way to measure it. You're going to settle some issues on parameters that go into it. And then you're going to have to freeze them so that you consistently rank up and down uh, in the right way and, if you, and as you learn more about deadweight losses in different circumstances, they'll stay frozen and you'll predict less well. And so there's a trade-off here between using advances in the science and actually getting the scoring consistent. And I think that's not widely recognized, but it's actually uh, very in, important in doing this. And that's, uh, that, that's related to um, uh, another issue, which is sort of CBO's role in, in doing all this. Um, the Congress is going to want a simple answer. I mean, the, the, this, in the end, the CBO is an advisory body to the Congress. The Joint Committee is an advisory body to the, uh, the Ways and Means Committee and the, the Senate Finance Committee. And, and the Congress can get any information it wants. But it doesn't want things that are complicated. Um, and certainly, it doesn't want to know that it's, it's one-half tau squared wage times labor supply you know, that is, it, is, it has gotten uh, simple numbers because that's the, the kind of thing it can digest. And when we did the dynamic scoring at CBO, uh, they found it very complicated to understand that the answer differed depending on how much foresight people had and about whether you raise taxes or cut spending to balance the budget at the end of 10 years. Those are, that, that proved to be too much in the way of information to be sustained in the process. So this is going to have to be very simple, embedded in, into something like the 25% rough justice, even if it isn't right. Mm -hmm. It's going to have to um, be something that Congress wants uh, to put into uh, its, its uh, scores. And I think in the end, it, it, the lesson here is that 
when people get frustrated with CBO, and I've, I've seen a lot of this, and I've seen recently you know, some calls for CBO to be radically reformed and, and uh, have their, quote, scoring models revised and things, uh, I think that anger is misplaced. Uh, you get out of CBO what the Congress wants, and the blame lies with the Congress for bad policies, like the, the Affordable Care Act. The blame lies with Congress for incomplete information put into those policies because they could get anything they wanted. Uh, there's no question about that. And so in this case, um, what I think has to happen is something very similar to what we did with dynamic scoring. Uh, we did it. We did it in 2003 for the first time, analysis of the President's budget. Um, uh, we satisfied nobody in the process. Um, I think uh, the technical term is we confused the living bejesus out of the budget committees. They had no idea what they, they were looking at. Um, there were lots of problems with the way we did it. But the CBO now continues to do dynamic scoring every year. So for seven years now, we've, we've, it's in the process now. It's, it's now expected to be done on the President's budget. And my hope would be that it will be, continue to grow in its, uh, in its accuracy, its sophistication, and in Congress's comfort in looking at that analysis and, and learning something from it, and that ultimately you could extend it past the President's budget into other realms of scoring where it matters, where if we do Social Security reform, it will have dramatic impacts on the overall growth of the economy, and that should be in the analysis. If we do health care reform uh, repeal, we should, we should recognize the implications for growth. Um, and I think that um, if, if you want to get into deadweight losses, uh, the right way to do is get the, the production loss into a dynamic scoring framework and then come up with some sort of rough way to get uh, the sort of welfare declines past that um, regularly entered in in a rough justice way. And it will just take time. Uh, when we were talking about this beforehand, I just want to close with this. You know, I want to go back to the idea of, of a monopoly. I, I think just telling CBO to do it is actually not enough. I think there should be a, a competition of ideas with, with places like Cato and others actually doing this so that the genuine costs are recognized. You see how dramatic the, dramatically different the answer is when Chris put his slides up. So that when Congress looks to what they're getting from CBO, they can also look to other things and say, gee, what we're getting isn't enough. We need something that looks like that. And that kind of competition for ideas is actually a better way to move the policy analysis forward than to just simply point at CBO and say, do it. So I think that's, that's the other element in, in having this turn into a, a successful venture in raising the profile of the real economic costs of federal policymaking. Just close there. All right, we can go ahead and uh, take questions from the audience now. I want to remind you when the uh, microphone comes to you, please uh, give your affiliation uh, and uh, your, your name, your affiliation, and make sure that your question is, in fact, a question. Or personal phone. Yes, ma'am. <clears throat> My name is Li Yang. Uh, I'm thinking whether this type of model is too simplified because I don't see you discuss the benefit for those who cover by the insurance. And so that kind of productivity increase, or they maybe have a better job increase rather than the loss. And now we, if we say have a lot of health problems, they will raise the medical costs also. So I don't see this kind of discussion. So how could you really compare the benefit of, of this project or not? That's a very good point. Um, but you have to remember that um, in the current process, um, when we decide to spend a trillion dollars on health care reform, we've already done a calculation of whether it's worth that amount to get, you know, people covered um, and all the benefits that flow from that. Um, and what I'm saying is we're only looking at part of the cost. If you really wanted to take into account the full cost, you may have reached a different conclusion about health care reform. Now, just as an example, um, as a rough approximation, universal coverage achieves, it saves lives, um, um, but it achieves those extra lives, extra years of life, at the cost of about $80,000 per added year of life. Now, according to conventional wisdom, that is considered cost effective. 
But if it if the real cost is more like one hundred and twenty thousand dollars, one hundred and thirty thousand dollars. By conventional criteria, many people would question whether that actually is worth it. Um, and so that's an example of where fully accounting for the costs could have led to a different decision if we'd taken that, that into account. Um, I guess I'll leave it at that. I don't know if Doug has any uh, further comments. <clears throat> no, I, I think that that's the point. I mean, you have both uh, the cost side and the benefit side. And um, I guess it's, it's also worth noting that everything that's been said up here about the deadweight cost of tax uh, policy to finance government programs applies equally on the benefit side because you can uh, distort uh, everything in the economy through government spending programs as well. And so there's, a, there's a, uh, just a general um, issue that we do a very poor job of accounting overall for the distributional impact on both tax plus spending. We always talk about the fairness of tax policy, even leave out the spending side. And then we should also look at the the economic costs of both our tax and our spending policies in terms of diminished productive capacity. I think that's that's a general point that, that's just missing from the debate. Uh, actually, uh, Professor Conover, we had a forum here at the Cato Institute uh, a few months ago about whether universal coverage would actually improve health or save any lives at all. Right. And, <laughs> and, and so, and so I, I, think that's, I think that's a topic of debate. I think um, with, with regard to uh, 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 both of your responses, I think the, the, the best parallel to the deadweight loss, because this is an invisible cost, something that doesn't appear anywhere, is, is not so much the uh, health benefits that we might expect by spending more money on health insurance and medical care, but maybe the invisible benefits that might flow from those expenditures, like the positive externalities that some people, uh, or, uh, that some people experience because there's a law on the books mandating that everybody buy health insurance. Now, by the same token, there are also going to be people are also going to experience disutility by uh, virtue of that law being there. Any way to measure those, uh, and those are you know valid topics for debate, valid I mean considerations that people or that should go into lawmaking. Um, have there been any efforts to measure those sorts of uh, those sorts of externalities, hidden or you know hidden benefits? Uh, I'm not aware of any. Uh, I, I mean, I would say <laughs> I'm an academic, so I think anything is inherently measurable. It's just a question of how close to the truth you'll get from an estimate. Um, but I'm not aware of any analytic work along the lines you're describing. <clears throat> okay. So I guess the other point, since I'm just a tired bureaucrat at this point, um, <laughs> from the point of view of the way Congress does its business, the benefits of the type that you described are probably going to take a lot of time, and they end up disappearing outside the 10-year budget window, and a lot of the costs happen up front. And so one of the, another asymmetry that we run into all the time is this issue of the short-sightedness of the way Congress analyzes its problems. Upfront costs count differently than long-term benefits, and similarly, long-term costs. I mean, we miss those. Mm -hmm. Sir? Samar Chatterjee from Safe Foundation. Um, that triangle that, that, that you showed on your graph, the deadweight loss, seems to be a very small triangle compared to all the expenditures that are. So I'm wondering if you apply that to, to the war budget and then do that, then the entire thing, if it turns into a farce or if it turns into a defeat, it's going to be all deadweight loss. And so should the decision be always negative in that case? Well, let, let me start by saying that I, I guess I don't agree that this, the size of these deadweight losses is small. That is, if you take it relative to the amount of extra revenue you're collecting, it could be, you know, half or more of the additional amount. Um, and that's a big number to be ignoring, in my, my judgment. Um, I, I think when you're talking about war expenditures, I, I think we're back to trying to figure out, well, what are the benefits or costs of, or, or the benefits of an expenditure in the first place? And 
presumably we wouldn't be putting money into a war effort if we truly thought that it would end up resulting in a loss. <clears throat> Uh-huh. <laughs> it, it's a different cost, though. I mean, it, it, yeah. remember the deadweight losses are invisible. They're things that don't happen. You seem to be talking about, um, I don't know, literal, literal destruction of uh, production or, or, or capital. Well, I think the, the point does stand that there is a deadweight loss associated with spending on national defense. And, and, then, and that, that these calculations should uh, apply to taxes that are raised to spending on right. national defense. Mm-hmm. Did you want to add something, Doug? Yeah, I mean, a couple points. I mean, first of all, I think this is the sound of Congress drilling down to get policies right. I'm pleased. <laughs> pleased by that. Good I'm assured that that will cease momentarily. Um, <laughs> second is, I mean, this is about the extra cost above and beyond the visible cost. And so the, I think the, the, the benefit of the war in Iraq, the direct thing, is, is a different question. Right. Third, you managed to actually run into to one of those nice academic um, uh, disputes about what's really important. And there's a, a famous snotty line by Robert. Solo that talked about why was Arthur uh, Arnold Harberger obsessed with all these triangles because it took a thousand of those triangles to fill one output gap. Um, it wasn't a serious problem. But I think Chris has the right response, which is at the margin, as we push the size of the government, these things are escalating and they are now no longer trivial considerations. Um, they become very important elements of new policy making. Uh, particularly when when you push the boundaries as far as we have, and I think uh, that's the thing that no Congress recognizes, and that's the point of making some effort to raise the visibility of this issue. Question on the aisle? Um, My name is Alexis Ireland. I'm from NCPA. Um, I just wondered, did you factor in um, the effects on saving um, within this as a dead weight loss? In other words, um, for example, people being um, taxed at a higher rate and therefore bringing home less in saving rather than consuming the market. Is that factored into the um, loss and consumption side? Yeah, most of the estimates that I showed you are um, generated from general equilibrium models, which include um, you know, some assumptions about savings rates and that sort of thing. Uh, so I would say yes. <clears throat> what about the uh, the the um, the point that uh, Doug raised about uh, Professor Barrow and Professor Ulig? Professor Ulig made the uh, and uh, you point this out in your paper claims that deficit spending results in a much higher deadweight loss because uh, in present value term, terms because you're not only incurring a deadweight uh, because you're not only paying for the taxes. Uh, needed to cover that that initial spending, but also raising taxes to cover all the interest payments mm-hmm. on that borrowing that you're doing. Versus uh, Professor Barrow's point that, um, uh, as Doug, uh, if I understand it right, that uh, those that the the deficit spending is supposed to um, smooth tax rates over time and therefore reduce deadweight losses. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I don't. Um I don't know why there's that that inconsistency. Um, it, it, the Harold Ulig's figures were uh, published in American Economic Soci- American Economic Review, um, and so I I took them um, as being uh, plausible estimates. Um, and I don't know why he's coming up with an answer that would be different than. And barrows. So it, it can't be the interest payments because it's a present value calculation. So mm-hmm. you should be that should, should be, be that wash. should be dropping out. Mm-hmm. My my conjecture, and I'll just have to go read and find out, is right. Barrow was analyzing a situation where you spend. He was actually looking at wars. You, you debt finance a war so that you mm-hmm. keep the average tax burden lower, minimize the deadweight loss in, in the process. But it was a spike in spending coming down. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very different than uh, the world in which we actually live, where there's an enormous spike in spending that never goes down and one which is not paid for by taxes now. So the way you'd get an enormous deadweight loss is you go out to the future to the point where the world's about to collapse and you have to raise taxes to about 100%. Mm-hmm. And 
the deadweight loss becomes okay. very, very large. My guess is it's got to be something like that. It's about the U.S. fiscal trajectory being f- fundamentally unsustainable with an enormous tax increase at the end. Okay. And, uh, Doug, a, a question for you. You, you. you made the point that, uh, that the economists disagree about which triangle they should be measuring. They disagree <laughs> about what the parameters are for all of these triangles. Yes. What do you think is, uh, is what, what do you think would be the greater error? Um, uh, and maybe, you know, something about the magnitudes of each of these, the relative magnitudes of, the, of each of these errors. The error that's going to come from the inevitable misestimation of what the um, deadweight losses of government spending, government of uh, federal taxes are going to be, or the error committed by not accounting for them, not having them in an, you know, official cost estimate from the CBO so that the public is not, that doesn't really enter the debate. So, I mean, you know the bias from leaving it out. If you pick zero, you know you're wrong at zero. You are underestimating the, the economic costs of federal policies. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if you're doing that, you're also misestimating the budgetary implications. So I, I think we, we know that bias. If we go out and do this, we then have a non-zero estimate. And we, we, if you do business the way CBO sort of tries to do business, it's like, okay, we'd like to be just as likely to be too high as to be too low. Let's find the middle of the range. And at that point, you have a, a sort of unknown random uh, bias introduced into the system. But we know what's wrong with zero. Zero means it's too low. You might get a little bit too high. You might get a little bit too low. But you, you take out the systematic bias of that type. It's going to be hard to say. I mean, I think, I think picking which triangle is, is not the biggest error. I mean, I think, you know, you can settle that dispute. Um, you know, have a duel or something and let the, <laughs> let the winner pick. I don't care. <laughs> um, um, getting the parameters is going to be the big, big contention. So you think about the savings uh, impacts. Uh, that's been highly contentious, and that's a big deal in this. And so that'll be a hard part of the, the exercise. Yep. Mm-hmm. Sir? Um, I'm Franz Koch from uh, Johan Heckler. We are um, investment bankers. Um, my question is, aren't we deluding ourselves a little bit to think that the, all this analysis is moving Congress and I realize I'm overstating the case uh, a bit. But, I mean, Congress is respons- responsive to whatever movement comes out of its constituencies. Mm-hmm. And if we can't put forward simple analysis that the constituents understand, mm-hmm. then we're not going to be able to move the, co- move, move the congressman. Could you comment on that? That's a, a very legitimate point. It's a good point. Um, Part of the reason that I would like to see some of these numbers coming out of official agencies, I mean, I concur with Doug that competition is a good idea, that monopolies are bad. Um, but in, in the competition of ideas, the CBO numbers, as an example, are viewed by most people as being reasonably impartial. They're not trying to bias the debate one way or the other. Um, and you know, they're doing the best they can, if you will. Um, and so um, a deadweight loss estimate coming out of CBO, I think, is going to be more likely to, you know, enter the public debate, you know, on op-ed pages, et cetera, um, and compared to a, an estimate coming from Cato, um, as an example. Um, it could be that the Cato number is actually closer to the truth, but I'm just saying in terms of perception about, you know, it, for most people, these are going to be sort of black box calculations. They're not really going to understand, well, how did they go about it? And so there, there always could be a suspicion that you've cooked the numbers, you've picked, uh, you've selected, cherry-picked the assumptions to get an answer, a bigger answer than, than really is legitimate. Um, and and I do think that we already see the impact of the Tea Party movement on what's happening in Congress. That is, um, I think I think we'll really see it on November second. But the point is, people got very aroused as they saw these bigger and bigger budget deficits. They saw the prospect of higher taxes coming down. Um, and this kind of number can contribute to the debate about 
you know, what's the legitimate size of, of government? Um, how big should it be? Um, and, and I guess it's ironic for me to be arguing in today's environment um, because citizens at this point do seem to be very aroused. Um, on average, our bias is we've tilted the system in favor of a bigger government than I think we really want, in part because we've hidden, left some of these costs hidden. <clears throat> I mean, it takes a long time. It'll take, it would take a long time to educate the public about what these numbers mean. Um, but I think most people understand, oh, you know, you're going to knock a point out of GDP or something like that. I mean, they understand the notion of lower output. And I think most people understand the proposition, if you tax something, you'll get less of it. Um, that, that doesn't require a degree in economics to understand. <clears throat> okay, if there are no further questions, I thank you all for joining us. And I ask you, uh, okay, the, this will be our last one then. Okay, if you want to wait for the microphone. So that. Samar Chatterjee from Safe Foundation. I have a question for uh, Mr. Cannon. Uh, I looked at a paper that, uh, uh, yes, Mr. President, a free market can f fix health care. And my question is, if the free market screwed it up, how do you think it's going to? It's going to need some intervention. To well, I would, I would dispute the premise of the question. And as I explained in that paper and some others, uh, the health care sector of the economy is uh, as heavily regulated or more heavily regulated than any other. And you, you know, you, you can't really call it a free market in healthcare when 50, per, 50 cents out of every dollar spent on healthcare is spent by government, which gives it considerable control over how the health sector operates, and, um, and probably more than 50 percent control. Then there are additional regulations layered on top of that. There are distortions that are created through the tax code that uh, penalize people if they buy a certain type of health insurance. Uh, namely the type of health insurance that they get to pick themselves and control. Um, and, 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 you know, there, there, there are further health insurance regulations. There are regulations on clinicians and facilities. And actually, Professor Conover did an excellent paper for the Cato Institute a couple of years ago uh, that tried to tally the cost of all of those regulations. And it was actually pretty costly. I think it was something like $160 billion per year, and that was in 2002, probably even larger now. Yeah, that was a net. So I took I took the benefits minus the costs, and the net is a burden of 169 billion, and that's back in 2002. And so and so that's a, that's an excellent uh, 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 sort of primer on exactly how extensively regulated the health sector is, and how it is not even remotely in the neighborhood of being a free market. And 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 in that paper that you mentioned, I uh, recommend a number of steps that would get us much closer to a free market in healthcare. Jacob. Uh, Jacob Schmuckler from the Cato Institute. I have a question for uh, Mr. Holtzikin. I'm going to piece together a few comments that you made to try to form this question, but um, you had said that CBO is largely responsive to Congress, and because Congress likes to keep these numbers simple, they use a uniform rate of 25 percent as Yes. So, okay, so my first question... CBO doesn't do anything at the moment. Only the Office of Management Budget does, and only oh, for regulatory affairs. Oh, and B, okay, so, so, they, so they use, like, this uniform number. What sorts of changes would need to take place to revise that number upwards, um, which uh, Mr. Conover, or Professor Conover's paper would suggest that it does need to be revised upwards? What sorts of changes? Is that, is that a slow, tedious process, or would simply a more... Uh, conservative Congress that claims to be, you know, to take into to be against tax increases, take more of this deadweight loss into account. Would that simply be enough to uh, make the changes in order to make that number what I guess Professor Conover would say would be more accurate? So, um, if you separate the Washington landscape into the executive branch, OMB, uh, that would have to be a change in the OMB circular guidance on how agencies are run. It's a, it's an executive uh, branch. Uh, decision about how agencies should prepare their analyses. It's a management decision. Um, it would be a contentious one. And, you know, the politics of doing it are all that stand in the way of the executive branch changing the way that that particular analysis gets done. On the congressional side of the ledger, the CBO operates under the 74 Budget Act and uh, uh, subsequent amendments to it, and it would be, require statutory change to the Budget Act to bring 
into play larger elements of uh, economic policymaking as a former formal part of the budget process. Short of that, the budget committees could ask the CBO for supplemental information. I mean, it's, you know, if you think of the health care debate, uh, what did you see? Well, CBO would put out the budgetary implications. This is what happens to mandatory spending, discretionary spending, fees, taxes. Oh, and by the way, here's some supplementary information on number of people uh, who are now insured who didn't used to be under Medicaid, private insurance. There's lots of supplementary information that they provide part and parcel of their analysis. You can make this part of the supplementary information that you asked of them, and they'd be responsive to that request. Typically, the, bu the budget committees do that in a bipartisan fashion, so they're going to get both sides on board uh, before they do it, and that's the work that needs to be done, I think. Okay, I'd like to thank both of our speakers for joining us today. <laughs> See you upstairs.